we're headed into this era in which people are monetizing intangible things, whether that's their knowledge and expertise or being able to access someone and to gain access to their time and their presence to have a conversation with them. Welcome back to another episode of Influencer Business. I'm your host, Rich Scudelari. Very excited to have you with us here today on episode two of season four of Influencer Business. I'm excited because this episode today brings together two parts of my life, the influencer world and investing. Today's guest is Legion, an investor in the passion economy, a term that she actually coined about a year ago and one that has since gained a lot of traction and widespread acceptance in the industry amongst investors and beyond. So I wanted to have Legion because we talk to a lot of people on this podcast who are in the industry, influencers, marketers, managers, but we've never had an investor on the podcast who can talk about the industry from a very different perspective. See, Lee is incredibly accomplished. She's the founder and GP of Atelier Ventures, which looks at early stage consumer companies in the passion economy. And you might be wondering, what is the passion economy? Well, it's very simple. At its core, it's people building businesses around their passions. Whether it's launching a podcast about whales or creating comedy sketches on TikTok, it's turning your passion into a business. And there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are doing just that. So I thought it'd be great to have the person who coined that phrase on to talk to us a little bit more about what she's doing. So prior to founding Atelier, Lee was a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, one of the top venture funds in the world. And when she was there, she focused on early stage consumer investments. Uh, Prior to Andreessen, she had stints at Shopkick, where she was a product manager, and then also in the corporate strategy group at Capital One. She graduated with a degree in statistics from Harvard, where she also wrote for the Crimson, which is their paper. And then she she also served as the executive editor of the Harvard Voice uh, lifestyle application for students on campus. And uh, to top it all off. She's also an artist and a painter. So uh, incredibly talented woman. She's, uh, you know, all of her accomplishments, quite honestly, just a mouthful and amazing track record. But more importantly than all that, she's extremely thoughtful, very interesting, and just a great person. But before we get to our interview with Lee, uh, first, if you're listening to the podcast and you like what you hear, I'm going to say the same thing I say every time. Go leave us that five-star rating. Give us that glowing review. It really does help us out. And it also makes us feel better about ourselves. But with that out of the way, and with Without any further ado, let's get to our conversation with Lee. Lee, thanks so much for joining us today on Influencer Business. Yeah, thank you so much, Rich, for having me here. And by the way, I just want to say I've been a fan of your wife's work for <laughs> so long. I've been following her ever since before she was memorandum. Oh, wow. Back, back when, the, yeah, yeah, back in the New York days when I was in investment banking, and I think she was in investment banking as well. Yes, exactly. Yes. What firm did you work at again? Um, I was at Blackstone for a summer doing M&A, and then I was working at Capital One on Park Mm -hmm. Avenue. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Wow. Taking us back. Way, way back. Yes. Yeah. Well, (laughs) to that effect, before we dive in, can you give our listeners a little bit of a background? On yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, hi, everyone. So I'm Lee. I am a full-time venture investor. I invest in consumer startups in what I call the passion economy, which is new platforms that are giving people ways to access income and do work in a way that feels personally more fulfilling and meaningful than doing really commoditized rote work. Um, so I'm really interested in the future of work, um, especially... Uh, 
a type of work that um, allows people to express themselves creatively, use their imagination in their work, have upside and ownership over what they're doing, um, rather than just accepting directions from an employer or a platform. So that's my full-time focus. And I've been investing in startups for the last four years. Previously, I was working at a firm called Andreessen Horowitz in the Bay Area. And now I've started my own firm called Atelier to focus on passion economy investing. I love the name. I love the name of the new firm. Uh, And also for those of you who maybe don't spend a lot of time in the venture world because you're creators, Andreessen Horowitz is one of the most storied uh, funds um, in the world. So um, a a very (laughs) understated um, kind of background from (laughs) you. She's quite impressive. Um, So let's talk about the passion economy. Um, How did you become interested in in it? Yeah, so... I mean, it starts from a really long time ago. I think there's been so many life experiences that have brought me to the point where I am now. Um, So going back, way, way back, um, I grew up in a very artistic family. Um, I, my mom is an art teacher. I have multiple members of my family who are full-time professional artists. And so I've seen the type of um, content creation in the traditional sense of people actually creating physical pieces of art, trying to cultivate a customer base, um, trying to build up an audience such that they could actually sell their artwork and make a living. Um, And then beyond that, I sort of grew up as a child of the internet in the 90s and 2000s. Um, I got into blogging very early on. I was using some of the earliest blogging platforms like Zanga and LiveJournal. And then Tumblr and Blogger. um, And now finally, I'm on Substack. But I've been creating content basically my whole life, um, whether that's written content or also painting and drawing. Um, And so have always just grown up among and had a ton of appreciation for people who were creating content and trying to forge their own paths in their career, not just seeking employment at a company that already existed and, and taking directions from an employer, but people who were really leveraging their own skill sets and their passions in order to make a living. I I think that's truly, really admirable. And so have always been surrounded by and really interested in that. And then when I joined Andreessen Horowitz in 2016, one of our core areas of focus on the consumer investing side was on marketplace investing. We loved marketplaces because they have really strong network effects, meaning that with every incremental new seller or buyer that joins the platform, the marketplace actually becomes more useful to people because there's more products available. Um, And so they have this amazing dynamic, which is that the bigger they become as businesses, the more defensible they actually are and the stronger they become. And so we loved marketplaces from a business perspective because they ended up usually being winner take all. Um, And what I personally loved about marketplaces beyond that element was the fact that they represented these democratizing platforms for being able to access customers or dollars. So as a supplier, you could sign up to a marketplace without having any pre-existing advantage and get access to all of these customers and the ability to sell your products and to have it exposed to all of these customers without needing any sort of special background or gatekeeper. Um, And I found that really powerful. And I think for the last decade in the marketplace world, the prevailing paradigm of marketplaces was the gig economy marketplace where people could sign up, um, do work in 
a way that was very simple and streamlined that the platform sort of dictated. But I became really interested in what what is the future of marketplaces and how do people access work in a really turnkey, convenient way, but that lets them really express themselves and lean into their individuality rather than suppress it in order to make money. Um, so that really became the genesis of this investment thesis in the passion economy, which has now become broader than just marketplaces. I'm now interested in all sorts of business tools and platforms that are allowing people to make money in new ways. And that includes things like Patreon and Substack, where people are um, cultivating a base of loyal customers that support them through um, direct subscriptions and dollars. But I'm also interested in social platforms that I think represent the next wave of how people discover an audience and build up a follower base in the first place that can one day be monetized. Um, I'm also really interested in creator tools, things that help people to create something for an audience in the first place, whether that's um, perhaps a podcast recording tool or a video editing tool that helps people to create better content for their customer base. Um, so the whole stack of online entrepreneurship is something that really interests me. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's so broad and it's interesting because um, one of the first plate and kind of the links to this is probably Etsy, right? Because it was, you know, this wonderful marketplace where people actually were putting their passion into an Etsy storefront and making money and earning a living on s- selling on Etsy, right? That was probably a precursor in a way yes. uh, to kind of what we're seeing today. Exactly. And I would, I, I totally agree with you that I think Etsy is one of the, um, like more established older players in the passion economy in the sense that they're allowing people to really monetize their passions. So I think in the past decade or so, it's been a lot easier for people to monetize through selling products, whether that's on Etsy or through an affiliate program or through opening up their own Shopify store. Um, I think merchandise and driving e-commerce sales of physical products has become one of the prevailing ways that people with influence can monetize and earn a living. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think the next wave and where it's going in the future is that um, we're headed into this era in which people are monetizing intangible things, whether that's mm-hmm. their knowledge and expertise, or maybe even just the concept of being able to access someone and to gain access to their time and their presence to have a conversation with them. I think Mm -hmm. Cameo has done really well here in the way that they've unlocked access as a primary product that people can offer and sell. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating to see how it evolves. And and you definitely see uh, kind of a lot of people when they gain a following immediate, immediately pivot to per- merch drops of mm-hmm. some sort, you know, merch sales, because it is an easy way to um, monetize, whether it's a, a phrase or whether it's a, something that you're known for, an outline of your facial hair or in the, you know, in the case of James Harden or something like that, where you have something that you can offer in terms of a physical product and you feel comfortable asking to be paid for. But we're also seeing, like, I think Twitch was one of the early kind of places where we saw people just contributing to streamers, right? right. And not asking for anything in return necessarily, just, you know, hey, love what you do. Here's money to keep doing it. Yeah, exactly. It's almost as if we're shifting from a phase in which like the creator or the influencer was a channel through which to sell products to an era in which the creator or influencer is 
themselves a product. That yeah, the sell. entertainment themselves, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so we're moving from, hey, just this being an ad-based, you know, kind of compensation mm-hmm. method to I get paid to do this because people want to tune in, right? It's almost precisely not, not quite as, well, you know, Patreon is a, a great example of subscription service. Um, but things like Substack as well are kind of moving into that space. And it's fascinating because everybody is, you know, has an email inbox that's probably filled with more messages than they care to exist. But we're seeing a reversion in many ways to kind of older modes of communication and right. things like Substack becoming more interesting. But from a macro perspective, I want to talk a little bit about some of the key things that are under that are underpinning the passion economy movement, right? And mm-hmm. what makes it worthwhile as an investor, right? Because the the, the model in venture capital for because a, a lot of folks listening are creators or you know running marketing campaigns for big brands. You know, the the model on the venture side is that you're backing companies at an early stage because they're going to get big and therefore you're going to be able to make money on that. So what is it about this market that you know, is not just a short-term fad. It's not something that's going to revert back. What is it that makes this an interesting place to put money to work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I think several things. There's both um, lots of like long-term trends that have been pointing in this direction as well as short-term accelerants to it. Um, In terms of those longer-term trends, I think over the last decade or so, there's been a bunch of social networks that have just grown and reached critical mass and become scaled to the extent that basically everyone in the world is now using them, which now means that there's this rise of a creator class that has built relationships with and trust with a bunch of followers and audiences. I think if we had jumped straight from, you know, the beginnings of the internet to directly having content creators trying to monetize fans without anything in the middle, I don't think it can work because what you needed to happen in in the intermediate timeframe was for this rise of a creator class to build up an audience and to gain their trust such that they can then convert that affinity to a product of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think all of that intermediate time frame has represented a ton of like new potential businesses that have now arisen. Beyond that, I think in general in America, we have this like long-term epidemic of loneliness, a loss of a lot of the old social support structures and, and local communities that we used to have, um, including religion. And that means that people are seeking a sense of connection and emotional fulfillment and belonging. And for a lot of people, they get that from content creators that they love and engage Mm -hmm. with on a basically daily basis. And they feel like they really have a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that on the consumer side, on the demand side, you have the increasing familiarity with subscription models and new monetization models, not just consuming ads, but increasingly consumers are willing to pay for premium content um, and willing to pay an entity directly for um, expertise and various experiences. And and that benefits creators as well, because they don't just need to sell advertising and reach tremendous scale in order to monetize. They can just build a healthy base of fans that can be relatively modest and make a living off of that. And then obviously over the last few decades, there's just been in general, the rise of self-employment. I think there's been various studies that have been run on Americans in general, showing that 
like the majority of people would actually prefer to be self-employed than to be employed at a job. Like they're not just motivated by the financial gain, they're motivated by the sense of autonomy and freedom and flexibility and having control over their own professional Mm -hmm. lives. And I think that has accelerated uh, the desirability of being a content creator as its own career path. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the short term, you have COVID, obviously. And yeah. I think COVID has dramatically accelerated the passion economy because it means that people's opportunity costs are lower than ever, ever before. They probably don't have a ton of different options in terms of employment. Um, you also have a lot of people who are stuck at home. Their traditional entertainment options are gone. And so they might turn to creating content as a way to pass the time or as an experiment, just seeing what they can do with it and where it can go. And then in general, I think it represents this catalyzing effect of it it makes people realize that I think it's actually safer to be supported by a thousand true fans or a hundred true fans than it is to have a single employer represent your entire source of income. So I think people are looking for income diversification and being a full-time creator can actually represent that diversification. Yeah, it's so, it's so unique, right? Because for a lot of, and the grass is always greener, right? Because uh, uh, kind of going back to what you were just talking about, the survey done on the American people over the course of time wanting to be more, uh, you know, more people wanting to be self-employed or run their own businesses. Oftentimes that's done out of a place of not really knowing what that entails. And there are a yeah. lot of pieces to that that are quite messy and and boring and, and it can be enervating. Um, but, you know, as a, somebody who is a creator and runs their own business, right, you might look across and say, hey, I would love that steady check every two weeks, mm-hmm. right? Which is something that we can get into later with one of your portfolio companies. But it's, you know, it's a, a really interesting kind of dichotomy here because there's a ton of work that goes unseen on the creator side around running your business, paying taxes, yeah. paying employee, you know, employees, Um and would, you know, having that desire to maybe only have it be a nine to five thing where you get a check every two weeks versus you're right. There's a ton of risk when there's only a single employer, no, no matter how big that employer might be, no matter how long they've been around, no matter how long, how essential your function within that organization might be. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, I had a debate with Taylor Lorenz from the New York Times on this last week. She Now, was this over Twitter or was this in person? Or, it was or, over or, Zoom. It was Zoom. a oh, Zoom okay. broadcast to a, a live storm. audience. <laughs> no, but she also okay. did tweet about it. But yeah. um, her argument was that she hates the term passion economy because it connotes that people opted into this out of choice, that they feel a passion for what they're doing and they've just found a way to monetize their passion. And in reality, her point was there's a bunch of exceptions to that. There's people with their back against the wall who are looking around them, seeing that there's very few traditional employment options available and deciding to go into content creation because that is one of the few paths that seem viable to themselves. I'm not sure, you know, what the numbers around this actually are. My sense is that historically, at least, like most content creators probably um, did not choose to do it because out of desperation, they did it out of choice and a position where they felt comfortable enough to give up their full-time employment. But it is possible that, especially during this epidemic, um, that a lot of content creators who are newly entering this space are ones that are doing it out of necessity. Yeah, I I, I think that uh, 
I would tend to agree with you. I think historically, right, if you take the last 12 months out of the equation, historically, uh, it's definitely been a choice. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd also argue that um, this is a unique moment in time, but there have been many unique moments in time where people have had their backs against the wall and they have to figure out what what they're going to do. And humans as a whole are very ingenious in terms of how they approach life and figuring out the best way to make ends meet or a way to make ends meet. And so this is one of those, you know, opportunities. And so, yes, maybe on the margin, you can argue that not every creator is in it for, you know, passion purposes. They're in it for dollar purposes. Um, But ultimately, at the end of the day, certainly the pioneers in the industry and what led to this moment are folks, I can certainly say that in the kind of the fashion, beauty, uh, and lifestyle blogging space, it was definitely a passion. It was the type yeah. of thing that, well, you know, last week we had Makita on who started a blog back in 2007, uh, didn't even know you could make money on it, didn't really understand what analytics were, just did it because she loved fashion and she was working on the hill. And so she didn't get to flex right. that muscle very much. Um, and so, sure, maybe, you know, kind of the newly anointed creators are doing it out of necessity. But I I think that as a whole, that's a smaller percentage, certainly in terms of where the dollars are concentrated now, uh, in terms of where, you know, money flow is in terms of big followers, big partnerships, stuff like that. Not to say that won't be the case over the course of time. But I also think it's really hard to maintain um, consistency over time if it is not a passion. I agree. Um, just like any work environment, right? I think, you know, as somebody who looks at companies all the time, you probably see, you know, folks who are good at keeping people motivated and having having people bought into the mission tend to do much better because they don't have to ask much of their employees, their employees just give. And it's the same thing on the creator side. Yeah, I agree. I think of creators as basically entrepreneurs. They're people who are starting a business they, I mean, it's it's not a traditional type of business and it's like a new path than what has his historically existed for entrepreneurship, but it's a modern form of entrepreneurship that's completely digitally based. And mm-hmm. to succeed as an entrepreneur, you have to have a degree of intrinsic motivation, like the, the right. passion for the idea and the passion for what you're doing needs to be there. Otherwise, there's just going to be so many roadblocks and obstacles that are going to trip you up and just represent easy options for giving up. Right. Because there's, you know, if you go to viral on TikTok, right, as an example, and create a massive following overnight, um, there are a few people who have done that. And most of them have a backlog of content that people go to after they see the viral video and say, oh, this is my jam. I like this a lot. I'm going to follow them because I see all of this other content that they've created, right? It's very rare that somebody goes kind of overnight, is an overnight success. It's usually years of content over time that eventually either builds or there's a moment where they get a bunch of exposure and people find them and say, oh, this is what I like. And it's those, it's that long grind that is the hard part, right? When the dollars aren't coming in, or maybe they're not coming in as readily as you'd like them to. And getting yourself out of bed, and we say it all the time, if you don't love it, it's going to be very hard to do and very hard to maintain. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with that 100%. Um, so I tend to uh, enjoy your coining of the phrase passion economy. I think Thank that you. makes <laughs> makes a lot of sense. No offense to Taylor. I know that she's very embedded into this stuff. But having been around it for a long time now, you know, seven or eight years on my end, like that is what you see. That is a constant trend um, among yep. the folks that certainly we've had on this podcast and post, the folks that we've come into 
contact with in in the industry. And it's interesting too, and we can maybe talk about this a little bit later, that each kind of creator class, like you, there is a creator class, but each subdivision has its own unique kind of quirks. Uh, you know, whether it's YouTube or Twitch or TikTok or, or Instagram or the OG bloggers. And so it's really mm-hmm. fascinating to see kind of what has been their intrinsic motivations along the way. But you, you know, it's interesting because you're so interested in this, but you had kind of a more traditional route until, you know, the last several months where you've decided to start your own firm, right? Um, yeah. And, and so now you're kind of almost, it's kind of come full circle, right? The passion economy, yes. uh, you know, investor looking to venture out on her own and, and invest in the passion economy. It's this yeah. interesting I'm so glad that, that, <laughs> that is apparent to you. Like, yeah. I think, yeah, I think of what I'm doing as basically the passion economy version of venture capital, right, yeah. where using these new platforms like AngelList and Twitter for brand building and Substack for long form pieces. Like I've been able Mm -hmm. to, to be a venture investor without needing the support of a traditional institution to act as that gatekeeper. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've, I've gone independent as well. Um, And I would also say that like, I very much consider myself a content creator as well, even though I haven't reached the scale of some of your audiences and I haven't monetized a lot of my content. I've enjoyed creating content, especially written content for a really long time. Yeah. And if you're interested in the passion economy, I highly recommend you sign up for Lee's Substack. I'm a subscriber and an avid reader of the content that she puts out. It's quite good. It's very thoughtful. Um, it's also nice in a world where everything feels very short form. Uh, you can actually really dig into uh, some interesting analysis that you do on the economy as a whole. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's at lee.substack.com. li.substack.com. Check it out. Um, But let's talk a little bit about now that you're uh, a little bit more independent here, what companies get you excited? What types of companies, you know, and what are the, you know, is it qualities of the founders, the product? Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what it is that you look for. Yeah. Well, this is the tricky part of the job to really describe in words is exactly what I'm looking for. Because if I could describe it super succinctly, then I mm-hmm. I would probably just go build it myself. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a few um, there's a few elements that I look for, um, especially in the space that I'm interested in. One is obviously, um, does the platform create a new path for work? Is it making a type of work that has historically been pretty difficult to access um, for most people? Is it making it easier for more people to be entering that that type of work? Um, So an example of this would be something like Patreon or Substack, where it used to be really difficult to be a full-time YouTube creator or a full-time podcaster or a full-time newsletter writer. There were probably only a handful of those in the world. And those platforms made it so much easier to do that full-time as one's profession or at least a side hustle and to earn an income from that by creating like an integrated platform to do that. Um, So that's one is like, is it democratizing a new form of work? Um, Two is like, I'm looking for, is the new platform creating like a high depth of value for the workers as well as the consumers? I think for any new platform in the passion economy, um, typically founders and maybe even investors are always thinking about who the creator is, who the 
like basically the supply side of the marketplace if we are thinking of these things as marketplaces. But I think at the end of the day, as a consumer investor, um, we we have to think through whether something is addressing a core consumer need. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's empowering creators to create something, well, who are the consumers at the end of that? And what right. are the needs in their daily lives that this is mm-hmm. going to be solving? Yeah. Um, because these companies are going to live and die by whether they're dr- addressing a need that's really prevalent among millions of customers. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Then, and then lastly, I would say... Um, I I care a lot about the team, especially because I'm an early stage investor. There's very little data and traction to go off of. And so um, I'm spending a lot of time with the team, really understanding what what are their motivations? Are they in this because all of a sudden creators are hot and it's like a growing space? (laughs) Or do they feel just a deep passion for it? Uh, As we mentioned, like, can they not imagine building for any other segment of the population? Um, and also, like, what is their level of product intuition? How did they t- decide on this particular product solution? What were the trade-offs they made? How do they explain that thought process? And there, I'm just looking for, yeah, a deep passion for the customers that they're serving, very deep product expertise and intuition, a lot of empathy for the customers that they're serving. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've seen over the last several years is I think that, and I'd be curious to get your opinion on this, is that um, a lot of times um, what I've seen is there are some wonderful products for the creator economy and the passion economy, right? Um But I think I've seen a lot of technology folks with no background in kind of the being a creator or the passion economy try to jump in and take a very tech background and say, oh, I can just apply it and that's fine. And then on the other side, I've seen a lot of creators uh, who don't have any tech background say, oh, I can I can do this as well. Um, part of me feels like there has to be a significant overlap there. You have to have a little bit of both in order to make it work because the nuance is incredibly important on the creator side, but also knowing what you can and can't do with tech is, incre- is incredibly important on the tech side. Do you see that happening a lot where a lot of interesting ideas fail because the devil's in the details and the tech team doesn't understand that and vice versa? I agree. I I agree with that completely. I think the Venn diagram of like needing to be really good at the tech side and the product side and having really great consumer product intuition overlapping with an understanding of the creator segment and who these people are that are actually providing the value. I think that Venn diagram overlap is really, really small. It's like growing, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of people that fall into either or and they try to build a software company for this space and, and they either fail because of like one of those things that they're lacking. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other common um, sort of deficiency or lack that I see is like potentially um, technologists or creators trying to build a product. And that product is going to touch consumers in some way, but they don't come at it from a very consumery perspective. So for instance, just, you know, as a, uh, as an example of this, what this could look like would be like, you know, a, a a bunch of creators might think, oh, like TikTok is great. The short form video format is awesome. So engaging and entertaining, but there's just not enough ways to monetize. So we're going to create a TikTok clone that just allows 
customers to tip you or donate to you or subscribe to you. And it's going to take off because creators are going to want to create content for this. Well, you know, my pushback is like, but what need is that solving for on the user side? Like, Mm -hmm. why would users opt for this new network where there's probably going to be very little content to start off with? Oh, and they're also pushed to pay for things versus this existing (laughs) social network that has reached scale, has a ton of great content on it, and they're they're not asked to pay for anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that consumer sense needs to be there as well. No, 100%. And I've seen probably four or five of those that you're talking about. (laughs) We've probably, well, we've passed a few back and forth. But um, you're absolutely right. I think oftentimes people don't think about the consumer. They just think about the creator and sometimes the companies that pay the creator. Uh, and they don't mm-hmm. think about the end consumer. And there are certainly um, products. One of your portfolio companies, as an example, really doesn't touch the end consumer. Uh, right. Stir, I'm thinking of in particular. Um, you know, they don't touch the end consumer, but it's a business tool. You know, and that's yes. kind of what we focus on here at Trove. Um, and I do want to spend some time talking about Stir because I think it's incredibly interesting as a tool for creators uh, when we talk about kind of income being a bit sporadic and, and yeah. how can we level that out. Um but you, you, you're right. You see a lot of these clones because they don't think about the end consumer. They're too busy thinking about a, a variety of other things. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I agree with you. I think there's definitely going to be a like a array of various platforms and tools that emerge that serve the needs of just the content creators themselves. And Stir is one of them. Stir is this um, startup that I back that's a seed stage company. And they're giving ways for um, content creators, especially YouTubers, to be able to split revenue with all of their collaborators. Um, And they're giving them basically a financial dashboard that shows all of their different sources of income. Um, And this is an example of a platform that just is built for the creators in mind. It's not consumer facing. Um, but, you know, I think for for companies that are trying to build a new social network or a new entertainment platform and the success is going to hinge on whether consumers use it or not, you have to really cater to who that constituency is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd really encourage um, folks on on the who are listening to check out Stir. It's a, an interesting platform, especially, you know, if you're on YouTube and, and uh, you're creating on platforms like that, um, because it does kind of help you out as you think about how am I making money? What's my profitability look like? How do I split this up with people I'm co-producing episodes with? Really, really interesting and a very product-minded team as well. I love their idea around drops. So what they do is uh, they effectively address moments in time that where there's a need for, uh, as an example, there was the threat of TikTok going down, right? And that's a moment in time where, hey, I need to download all my content. How do I do that? Or they, they think about the moments in time that are really important to creators as well. It's not just about their core product, which I think is really interesting. And it, it gives them a lot more data points, a lot more data points, a lot more contact with the ultimate end user, which is really important. Yeah. So you can find them at usedur.com. Um, just a little plug Quick there. Quick plug, yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and you might have come across some of their um, their product drops in the past few months. Like they did one called pre-subscribe, which let you actually like essentially pre-subscribe and 
um, elect to support a creator even before they went independent. So if there was a journalist that, you know, you wish they had an independent newsletter and you wanted them to go independent, you could actually pre-subscribe to them. And mm-hmm. um, once they signed up, they could unlock that pool of income. They also did an interesting drop called Only Tweets, which is exactly what it sounds like, but allowing people to have a paid subscription access only um, Twitter feed if they wanted to monetize natively on Twitter. Um, so yeah, I, I think they're really great. They're very experimental. They're very responsive to the needs of creators. And I think that's incredibly important. We talk about experimenting on the creator side all the time. Like you don't know what's going to resonate with your audience. You, you know, have a certain way of thinking, but your audience might, you know, react differently to certain things that you might produce as a creator. Um, and that's really important also on the build, the tech side, because you just don't know what is going to resonate. And oftentimes it's the third or fourth or fifth or 10th experiment that actually takes off and it, you know, completely alters the business path of the company. But um, but let's talk really quickly about creators and, and the folks who are actually, you know, putting forth the effort into creating content and um, reaching users. How should they be thinking about their businesses now, right? You look at it a lot mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, from the perspective of what are going to be the interesting platforms, what are going to be the interesting tools. Um, but how do creators think about turning what they've built so far or interested in building into, you know, long-term sustainable companies versus just kind of short-term cash opportunities? Yeah. um, So a few things. I mean, first of all, caveating all of this with the fact that probably the folks who are listening to this, who are content creators themselves, they probably have a lot more intuition and experience for this than I do. But just giving my perspective as an outsider who has studied a lot of these creator platforms, um, I think there's a few various like principles for success. One is um, I think the events of the past few months have taught people to not put their eggs all into one basket platform wise. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the shutdown of Mixer, the threatened shutdown of TikTok, um, you know, over time, a lot of people have gotten demonetized on YouTube or et cetera, et cetera. I think that just heightens the need to be cross-platform as a creator. And probably better than all of those things is to have your own platform, to have your own website or blog that you can drive your audience to that you completely own and you completely have control over over that no one is going to deplatform you from. Um, so I think that is one key principle. The other is um, probably related to that, the need to own your customer rather than just rent them. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I make that distinction between renting and owning, meaning like, are you able to reach your audience whenever you want to with whatever message you want to, um, Over time, I think more and more creators have wisened up to the fact that when you're using a social platform like Instagram or YouTube, you don't actually fully control what your audience sees. Even if they've decided to subscribe to you and follow you, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will actually see your content when you post it. And I mean, I don't think small businesses in the past, you know, centuries would have accepted that as a reality. I think if people had decided to be their customer and elected to subscribe to them and follow them, you would be, you would expect to be able to reach them however you wanted to. Um, that's just not the case on these platforms with the algorithmic feeds. Like the platform is always going to have control over what the user sees. So I think for content creators, it's become more important than ever before to have a channel through which you can actually 
definitely reach your audience. Um, so mm-hmm. that might be email, that might be text message, that might be um, getting them to visit your own website. But having a channel that you own rather than rent is really important. And then um, lastly, I would say just to, in that transition of you know short-term fame to long-term sustainable business, I think I always come back to Clay Christensen's jobs to be done framework. So Clay Mm -hmm. Christensen was a um, business researcher and professor at HBS. And he's written a lot of great books about disruption theory and innovation. And he had this theory called the jobs to be done theory, which is that people don't purchase a product just for the product itself. They're actually purchasing a product in order to make progress in their daily lives and they hire a product in order to help them get that job done. So that job to be done might be, you know, I am going to a wedding and I don't know what to wear and I need to look great and impress people. Or the job to be done might be, I feel really bored in the morning while my coffee is being made and I need something to fill that time. Um, Or it might be, you know, I um, don't have anyone to talk to and I feel really lonely and I need a product to solve for that. And so as as a content creator, I, I encourage people to align themselves to a job to be done in the user's mind, whether that's inspiration for a home renovation or up-leveling their wardrobe or whatever whatever the core like consumer need is, I think creators and businesses of all types need to need to align themselves to that rather than just resting on their personal fame. Because I Mm -hmm. think fame as a person, it's, it'll probably fade and people are very fickle and audiences constantly refresh who they feel affinity for. But if you're solving a real core deep need that is prevalent and perpetual over that user's lifetime, then I think you can really build a business with longevity. For sure. Absolutely. And how specific do you think the creator on that last point, how specific do you think a creator needs to be in kind of nailing down their job to be done? Like, do I have to say I'm a, you know, I'm a fashion blogger or do I have to say I'm a, you know, very like my niche within the fashion world is events that require you to wear address and therefore I'm, you know, like how, how specific do you think, how important is specificity? I think that the internet really rewards and empowers niche. Okay. Like, I think it's important to, to represent something very specific in users' minds and not to go too general. Otherwise you actually are, tend to be forgotten and people are unable to really remember what you stand for. Mm -hmm. I've always been very impressed with how founders are able to take my writing, which is very specific. It's it's about the passion economy, this term that previously like no one had been using and generalize it to encompass all sorts of different businesses that I'd never had in mind when I was writing my blogs. Mm-hmm. They're able to take something very specific and generalize from it. Whereas I think humans in general, they're not as good at taking something very broad and going to something specific from it. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the more specific you can get, the better. And to one of your earlier points, it can be much more valuable to have a hundred or a thousand very rabid fans than a hundred thousand. Yes. Yeah, I agree. The The beauty of the internet and these new monetization models is that you don't need to be a creator that 
has like a monopoly on the entire fashion space. You can probably just be a fashion blogger with for special events dresses and still be very successful in today's day and age because you can reach people all over the world who are interested in that niche topic. That's right. Absolutely. So let's talk about the future. So over the course of the next 10 years, how much will the passion economy be shaped by kind of the big players, Instagram, TikTok, Patreon, like the, what we would call the establishment, despite the fact that they've been around for, (laughs) you know, less than five years. Some of them have been around for less than five years versus kind of young or non-existent companies, the ones that you're actually out there looking for and backing right now. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that they're the establishment because I think TikTok, I mean, 18 months ago, they barely existed in the US. Uh And Patreon was founded in, I think, 2013. So -hmm. a lot of these companies themselves are very young, which I think goes to show that there's always going to be generational turnover in these platforms Mm -hmm. and tools. Um, And so I think there's going to be new players for sure. I I think the prevailing um, belief in a lot of VCs' minds in the last five years or so, at least before TikTok um, rose to prominence, was a lot of people believed consumer social was over. Like it had been played out. Like Facebook and Instagram won. They connected the entire world and they had such powerful network effects that there would never be again another (laughs) successful scaled social network. And Mm -hmm. obviously... TikTok came along and then, Mm -hmm. and also Snap, Snap did as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think no matter how big and um, entrenched we believe these platforms to be, I think there's always going to be new startups that arise and gain a ton of traction and rise to prominence. And I think that's because because of generational turnover in humans too. I think the next generation of individuals is constantly looking to build social clout and influence and looking to accrue status. One of the blog posts that I constantly um, refer to is my friend Eugene Wei. He published a blog post, I think a year ago, called Status as a Service, where he talked about a lot of these social platforms. Um, The key need that they're filling among their users is the desire for social status. And humans are status-seeking monkeys. We're always looking to up-level our status. Even if we had a ton of money and had fulfilled like all of the rest of our needs, we're we're still looking to increase our status. And so I think with every new generation, they're looking for new ways to build status. And like the younger generation always wants to become famous. And if they see that it's now really difficult to become famous on Instagram, they'll go and adopt a new platform where it's easier to become famous, thus TikTok. And Mm -hmm. after TikTok, I think there's going to be a next platform that helps the next generation as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I I don't think anything is ever certain um, when it comes to technology platforms. And I think there will always be something new. Which yeah. is really exciting from an investor perspective. Well, I think it's exciting for everybody involved, right? Yes. Like there is certainly fatigue amongst creators. Like you build, like you said, you can't be lever- highly levered just a single platform because there's risk there, right? Um, and you, so there is certain level of fatigue because you got, what do you have? You have... Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, TikTok, right? You can just continue, the, the list goes on. And, and as you think about making sure you're keeping up on all these various channels, it can be quite overwhelming. But you have to pick your spots, obviously, and you can't be everywhere to and talking to everyone all the time. 
But I think you're absolutely right. I think it's going to be fascinating to see and very exciting because the other thing that TikTok did is it opened up a world of opportunity for people who maybe didn't fit the mold that was quote unquote Instagram or quote unquote Pinterest, right? right? Whether it was, you know, kind of short form comedy or dancing or whatever it might be. Uh, and certainly from an entertainment perspective, it opened up this new world. You could argue that Vine was, you know, kind of in the same vein perhaps, but definitely not on the music front. So, Yeah, it's interesting. I think you bring up a really interesting point around what the creator perspective to this is, which is that you constantly need to keep pushing forward and not just rest on your laurels and get too comfortable on any given platform. You have to keep adopting the new platforms and following the audiences to where they are, which I think is, yeah, that, that does seem like it can get quite exhausting. (laughs) And you also have to, you can't just do what you were doing before. You have to constantly like refresh your skills. And now it's probably about dancing and lip syncing and like being (laughs) very... Well, on one platform, I still think, you know, with a billion people on Instagram, there's still a big enough audience there to, you know... But you're absolutely right. And honestly, you know, as somebody who embraces change, I think it's exciting because it forces you as an, uh, you know, not, and it's not necessarily, hey, I have to do the lip syncing and dancing. It's how can I take what I do? Because one of my favorite things is to look at these really niche creators on on TikTok like doctors, lawyers, mm-hmm. and they use that 15 to 30 sec or 60 seconds to produce their content, right? And to get a message out there. There's a 15-year-old kid who's tutoring on TikTok. Like, that stuff to me is really exciting because it's somebody who's taking what they're good at, their passion, and fitting it in. I think oftentimes constraints can be one of the purest forms of creativity because it forces you to think outside the box. It's no longer, hey, do the same thing you've always done. It's, hey, here's a platform. How can you take your art and put it on this platform that has these constraints? Right. Yeah, I love that. That's the the positive way of looking at it. but (laughs) And it's easy for me to say because I'm not creating all the time. Yeah, I'm totally in awe of content creators that are able to be successful cross-platform. It's like having so many different skills and Mm -hmm. succeeding at a talent show with not just one act, but like five. Right. No, absolutely. (laughs) Well, to that end, all right. So you are a creator, right? Mostly uh, Twitter, and then long-form content on Substack. But you're also an accomplished artist and, you know, have a variety of other interests. But if you could be one type of creator, and we're going to, I'm going to force you to get very niche here, right? Mm -hmm. You know, lip syncing, (laughs) dancing on TikTok or comedy on YouTube with a Patreon. Like, what type of creator would you want to be? Not necessarily... Think about it from two perspectives. One is like a passion. This is what I love to do. And then two, also from a monetary perspective, business building perspective. So two answers. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I already know this answer because I tried. Um, So (laughs) when I was in college, I took voice lessons for a really long time with a private instructor because... I had been raised to think that you could do anything that you put your mind to. And I thought that applied to singing and musical abilities, which I'm afraid to break it to the audience. It's just not true. Like there's some (laughs) skills in the world that no matter how hard you work at to to try and get better at, you're just not going to get there. (laughs) And um, it was really disappointing because I've always loved like Mariah Carey and Mm. Adele and like all those amazing vocalists in the world. And I really wanted to be like them. I I noticed you left off Celine Dion. I don't know if- Oh, I'm a huge Celine. (laughs) Yeah, Celine, sorry. (laughs) You're in there too. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, so like if I could have any skill and be any type of creator, I would, I would say a singer, mm-hmm. um, but that's never going to happen. So more realistically, it, it's probably going to be writing a book, like a okay. long form book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I recently, I also started a YouTube channel called Means yeah. of Creation where mm-hmm. I do weekly interviews and I've been really enjoying that as well. I think YouTube is a really fun platform and lets me be really creative and humanize myself as an investor. So um, probably from a, like, like a, what satisfies both like realistic for me to do as well as helps me to monetize. It's probably going to be the YouTube thing. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Lee, thanks so much for joining us today in Influencer Business. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Yeah, I really love this. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. And I want a quick plug here before we we sign off because Lee has said that she loves creating with, uh, or excuse me, she loves connecting with influencers from all across the different categories. So Lee, if people are interested in getting in touch and become, becoming part of the passion economy family that you're developing, where, where can they reach you? Yes, um, definitely. I'm always looking for new friends and, and who are content creators. I love talking to content creators just to really understand their journeys, their motivations, what keeps them going, what their goals are. And so I'm open for conversations anytime. And so I keep my DMs open on Twitter. Um, I'm at lgen18 on Twitter, or you can just email me, lee at atelierventures.co. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Lee. Thanks so much, Rich, for having me. This is great. An awesome conversation with Lee. Make sure you're definitely following her on Substack. She's an awesome writer. Really interesting thoughts on the industry. And definitely reach out to her if you're interested in connecting. She always likes connecting with folks in the industry, especially influencers. Um, But a couple of things I wanted to mention from our conversation. So, First and foremost, the passion part of the passion economy is really important. And if I sound like a broken record, it's because I am. If you're in this for the money, you're not in it for the right reason. You're going to have a hard time and you're going to have a hard time sustaining what you're doing. You really have to love what you're doing. I think that's a very common thread amongst a lot of people who I've talked to, met with, and seen have success in this industry. At the core of what you do, you have to really love it and you have to enjoy it because it's such a bumpy ride. There are so many ups and so many downs that if If you don't, it's going to be hard to get out of bed and do what you're trying to do every single day. So that's first and foremost. The other thing I'd say is that there's a ton of innovation going on in the space. You might know know, a lot about a very specific vertical, but it's a massive industry. And you're really probably only scratching the surface of what's possible. So if you find yourself struggling to find your niche or the perfect platform, keep exploring. There are so many incredible platforms and communities and tools out there and more that are being created every single day. So if you have a past and you're looking how best to apply it, keep looking. Um, and, and the final thing I'd say is, uh, the last thing I'd leave you with uh, vis-a-vis this episode, since we're kind of taking this 10,000-foot view, the influencer market in the passion economy is really just getting started. You see how quickly we evolve over the past, even the past two or three years, in terms of how content has evolved on the different platforms, which platforms matter. Uh, and if you think about it, Instagram is 
only just turned 10. It has only just turned 10. It just had its 10th anniversary this past month. And it, it, it feels like such a central part of our lives, but it hasn't even reached middle school yet, right? So regardless of where you are in your journey right now, embrace that journey uh, and continue to evolve with the industry because we're still in the very early days. You know, it's only been 10 years since Instagram came out. TikTok, obviously a much shorter time. So there's so much opportunity still out there. There's so much innovation that is yet to come. And if you have a passion and you're looking to apply it, stay patient because there's going to be some amazing changes that come over the next several years in this industry. And where you are today is definitely not where you're going to end up. So thanks for joining us on this episode of the podcast. It's wonderful to have Leon. As always, a big shout out to my guy, Pete Crimmy and the team at Sound Lounge who always make us sound better over the podcast than we do in person. And one more time, if you like what you heard today, and whether it's your first episode or your 61st episode, leave us that five-star rating, give us that glowing review, share us with your friends. Uh, we're always looking to reach a new audience and, and have more people who tune in to influence your business. So thanks again for joining us on this episode. My name is Rich Scullari. I'm your host, and we'll see you next time.